Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Thank you for joining the podcast. Today's episode features the co-founder of one of the best performing real estate funds in the country. I get to talk with Michael Episcope, co-founder of Origin Investments. Michael started trading equities at a young age before turning his attention to real estate. In looking to preserve and build his wealth, Michael has grown Origin Investments from a few hundred investors to more than 3,000. In this episode, we talk about how Michael helped build Origin, his thoughts on the real estate market, investing in qualified opportunity funds, and the funds Origin has available for accredited investors. This is a great listen because we hear how Michael helped build up Origin and his reasoning for its business model. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. All right, guys, we've had a, a great run of guests from the, the real estate sector, and, and we have another great guest today with us. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Michael, uh, you know, you are with Origin Investments. You guys have what I believe about a billion dollars of assets under management. I know our readers were familiar with your company from the deep dive that we did a couple of weeks ago, but for the listeners on our podcast, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Origin Investments. Um, you guys have been around for about 10 years and really kind of what, what to me is fascinating is how you've been able to be so successful and how you started off with the company. Yeah, the, the roots of the company actually go back to 2007, so about 15, 16 years. But you're right in the sense that I would say origin that you see today, the, the roots were really formed around 2012, 13, around that time. And I, I came out of the commodity trading world and I started in that business. So I'll kind of abbreviate and truncate um, my career I started that when I was 19 years old. I started trading when I was uh, 27 years old. I retired from that business in 2006. So I was down there about nine to 10 years. And I was sort of like, what's next? Um, I had amassed enough wealth where I could kind of sit around for a little while, but I was too young to retire and just do nothing. And uh, when I also left, I was married with two kids and another one on the way. And when I started, I was just single. So I, I took some risk and it worked out. And the next phase of my life was really about protecting and growing the wealth that I had created, turning my assets and income, sort of what everybody wants to do when they amass some wealth along the way. And so I enrolled in a master's in real estate program at DePaul University, got my master's in a couple of years. I got together with my partner. Um, we had been working together in various sharing investment ideas, working on a nonprofit together starting in like 2002, 2003. We teamed up in 07 and it was quite simple at that time. I mean, this was pre-Jobs Act, pre-everything was on the internet out there. We just didn't have a lot of success investing with others. And, and we just kind of said, look, we're pretty smart guys. We can figure this out. We can do this. And nobody was going to be a better steward of our money than we were at that time. And we wanted to build something that was really centered around our capital for us. And the simplest way to describe it is creating more of an institutional organization for the high net worth investors and the high net worth investors who couldn't buy the whole deal themselves, who couldn't go out and buy three, four hundred million dollars of real estate, because at that time, the market was really dominated by high fees, non-transparency. Some of the larger institutions were in here, but it would always seem like it was two steps forward and either one, two or three steps back when you were investing with others. And, and that was kind of the, the genesis of origin. Fast forward a few years later, we started to bring in friends and family, um, building infrastructure, bringing our team together, 
honing in on our, our vision and our mission and what we wanted to do. And the more we thought about it, we want to continue to build this and, and build it better. And, and our investors really were loyal to us. They were grateful. We were getting a lot of referrals, but we weren't growing fast enough, you know, for an organization like us. We were like, God, we have such a good product. At that time, our first fund was already a top decile, meaning we had outperformed 90% of other managers. And the whole premise was, look, if you have a great product and you put it in front of a lot of people, then more people will buy your product. And so in about 2015, we decided to go all in on um, digital marketing, getting our name out there, going out to the internet, advertising. And at that time, it was very controversial. There weren't a lot of people doing it. And we said, look, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to grow. And, and we were really talking to the team because as we were building infrastructure, we were hiring people from institutional organizations and they wanted to grow like everybody else grew, which is institutions, big checks. It's not really where our heart was. We're like, look, the institutions are great, but these are the people who need us, people like us, people who we really understood and enjoyed working with every day, hardworking Americans who had saved two, three, five, eight million dollars. And they just needed a good manager, somebody who was aligned with them, investing next to them. That took off for us. So we went from, you know, I, I say the first kind of six years or five years was uh, we got up to about 85 investors. And then over the next two years, we got up to 500. And then it's been um, the last few years, uh, we've been building our, our product base, you know, so that we would always have product on the shelf. We have open-ended funds. We have closed-ended funds. We have credit. We have equity. We have multi-strat funds. We, we basically have three funds. I can talk about those in a little bit and a QOZ fund, a qualified opportunity zone fund. But today, proud to serve more than 3,200 investors. We have about a billion three in equity under management, which equates to a lot more assets because that's just the equity side of it. And, and I think, you know, there's two things. We have an amazing team. We just took them all to Colorado Springs, celebrate at the Broadmoor. We do this on an annual basis, find a, a place to go uh, with them and just connect together and 50 really talented team members. And the other thing is that we've maintained our top decile status. And so we've really, as investors in the company, in our own funds, we've been rewarded and it feels really good for those thousands of investors who we also represent with their money investing side by side um, with us in our funds as well. So it's been a great run and that's kind of where we are today. You mentioned that when you started marketing it, uh, your company kind of going out and trying to get more people, more investors into it, that it was a little bit um, controversial. Why is that? Nobody was doing it at that time. And I think when you're one of the first, and I would say it was controversial within more the organization. And quite candidly, I didn't really believe it either to an extent. We started with content and education and really um, marketing in that, uh, in that sphere. And I'll never forget about six months into the campaign, this couple walks into the office and I said to them, I asked them, so how'd you hear about us? Right. And there's like, oh, we were Googling real estate and we read your article, thought it was really good. We came to the website and now here we are. I'm like, oh my God, it works. Right. That might sound normal today, but back in 2015, I was the one saying, look, I'll do the content strategy. I get it. We're going to tap into our network. We're going to do this. And there were other reasons to do it. But I'm like, people don't Google real estate and just come in and invest. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth today. But the real controversy and the real kind of people who we had to pull along was our team. Our team, you know, thought that the market would be confused. My God, we're advertising, we're marketing. The market's not going to think we have money. They're going to be confused. Nobody else is doing this. Everybody looks like this. And we're like, we hear you, but guess what? We're going to do things differently. And this is really where we want to go. And we're passionate about it. And I, you know, give my 
partner a lot of credit too for you know pulling everybody else along. And it was pretty cool because it was a fast pivot when they were coming to us and saying, you know what I'm hearing now is people are like, man, what you guys are doing is really innovative. Is that cool? How do we do that? How do we, you know, so, so whenever you're the first, there's always going to be people on both sides who are saying, you know, that's not going to work or that's not a good idea. People don't like change, you, you know, but when you're passionate about something, you have to go for it. And that's how great companies are built and new ideas are spawned. And if we would have gone the other route, um, it wouldn't have been as fun and as meaningful as what we're doing today. Yeah, I really like what, what you said. If you have a good product, put it out in front of as many people as you can, you know, because they will uh, enjoy the product, right? They, they're going to buy into it. I, I wanted to, to go into kind of your strategy, right? You have focused on multifamily real estate. And I, I kind of wonder how you decided on doing that. Like, why not, you know, focus on single family homes or, or commercial real estate? What drove you in that direction? Uh, yeah, good question. And, and I think what comes to mind is people talk about the real estate market. And in the real estate market, in some ways, there's no such thing as the real estate market. There's no index out there. I mean, you can look at the public read index. But what I love about the real estate market is it is so dynamic. There are almost an infinite number of choices you can make when you're going in here and you have to pick a lane. And there's no right or wrong answer. I know individuals who make um, tremendous money in self-storage, um, others who make it in senior living, others who make it in mobile homes, others who make it in single family, even retail today, right? If you're a specialist, you know, office, I, I don't know many people making money in office today. So for us, it was a choice and it was a choice a long time ago. Um, we were in uh, more than one sector, but we've sort of narrowed it down. And when you really look at the history and you study multifamily, well, multifamily has produced some of the best risk adjusted returns and also the highest absolute returns over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years because of its necessity, if you will. And, and so that's one of the reasons. And when you look at an asset class that can produce high absolute returns with low volatility, multifamily really fits into that. And so that was really one of the reasons. Um, we understood it. We have a lot of expertise in-house. We build, buy, and lend to multifamily. So even within the sector itself, there are so many different areas that you can play. You can play in value add. You can play in class C, class B, affordable housing, tax credit housing. We tend to invest more in class A housing. So we will do value add and kind of what I call core plus, but more in the higher income demographics. So our tenant is what you call somebody with kind of a, a white collar demographic. They're called a renter by choice. So these are people who could buy a home, but they choose to rent. 70, 80, 90, in some cases, two, $300,000 they're making. So much more disposable income that they can put towards rentals. And because we are only in one asset class, it really makes the conversation both internally and externally much easier and simpler. And when you're out there and you're talking to the market and you're talking to brokers and you're looking at your data set, where you want to hunt for deals and look for deals, when you narrow the world down and you go an inch wide and a mile deep, you're going to be much more successful in that particular area relative uh, to others who are generalists, who are doing everything. So when it comes to internal operations, we know the details around what taxes should be, what operating expenses should be, where the best locations are. Um, we can compare our own properties internally, the rents, the occupancy, the, the growth within the rents, um, where things are moving, because all those fundamentals are very similar. So when we're talking about training the team, the investment management team, reporting to investors, having a single asset class makes life a lot simpler 
There are also drawbacks. We cannot provide diversification across different real estate asset classes to investor. But I will say what we provide in terms of diversification is diversification within the capital structure. So what I said before, we build, we buy, and we lend to multifamily. We're actually doing nothing in the middle. We haven't bought a single property in two years. We were net sellers the last couple of years. We have been incredibly defensive. And so we've been embarking on a barbell strategy. We've been building ground-up development, and we've been lending, and that's it. And in today's lending market, the opportunities are, I mean, just amazing compared to where they were six months or a year ago. And a lot of people think that you're building, so that must be riskier. And in fact, when you get into an investment, what matters most is your basis, especially in real estate. So I'll give you an example. Uh, We sold a deal last year around the airport in Denver. And we built that deal. It was a it was a good deal. I'm not picking it because of that. But we built it for two hundred twenty thousand a unit. We sold it for four hundred ten thousand dollars a unit, right? So you might think, oh, the person who bought the stabilized property, they're actually taking less risk than the person who built it. Well, we could still recreate that deal today for about three hundred thousand dollars per unit. Prices have gone up significantly in that. And so when you think about the market is going to be whatever the market is going to be in five years, I have no control over that. We have models. We can look at that. But let's just say, for example, we decide to build and we build that same exact project for $300,000 today and somebody else has has bought it for $410,000. Well, if the market goes to $500,000 per unit, we've both done well, right? They haven't taken a tremendous amount of risk. They bought a stabilized property, went up to $500,000. They made a nice profit. On our development, our basis is 300000 per unit. We pocketed 200000 We've also done very well. Well, let's talk about the downside. Imagine the market goes down to 350000 a unit in five years, right? Because when you're investing, it's all about protecting the downside. And the number one rule of investing is don't lose money. And in real estate, it's about basis. And this is my point. If the market goes down to $350,000, the person who paid 410000 a unit they would have levered that up at about two to one debt to equity ratio. So about 65%. So at $350,000, they would have lost about $60,000 per unit in value. That would equate to a leverage loss, right? On equity of probably around 40%. If we're building and we're in at 300 and the market is at 350, we've just made less money than maybe what we expected to make if the market were $500,000. And to me, that's what it's all about. How do you put yourself in a position to win when the market goes up and to not lose when the market goes down? And so the last couple of years has all been about defensively positioning our funds to take um, advantage of what we see coming down the road here in the next year. I don't think it's going out on a limb to say we're probably going into a recession. How severe it is, uh, is anybody's guess. We're really modeling more of a severe recession, giving back two, three, four hundred dollars in rent, stress testing our portfolios, and they're doing fine, even in an environment like that. And what's likely to happen is that over the next um, year, year and a half, you're going to see rents given back. You're going to see stabilization, potentially some distress in the market as well. And then we'll resume the long-term trend up. And the reason why I say that, and I'm confident about that, is because we still have a shortage of around 4 million housing units in the market. Fed is doing their job. They're slowing things down. It's actually a little bit welcome right now because there's been an imbalance, especially on the construction side. But once that works through the market, you still have to deal with the housing shortage. 
And that is really what's driving this market. So this is not 08. You don't have the same fundamentals going on. You actually have very strong fundamentals, but the market, just like the stock market, is due for a pause and a little break for a year or two until it resumes its long-term upward trend. What role does that housing shortage play? And, and has that caused you, know, you guys to kind of ramp up your strategy a little bit more in the, in the, in the building aspect that where you see but maybe like building is actually less risk than than buying a current building and is that something that's that's changed your, your strategy over the last couple two three years and, and moving forward yeah we, we saw this actually in a in a pre-covid world what we saw was it just wasn't a good bet we were looking at value add deals that were approaching replacement costs and by the time again i'll go back to my analogy if you can if you're buying a 10 year old asset that you're going to hold for 5 years by the time you sell it it's going to be 15 years old but if you're paying $250,000 a unit and you have to put $20,000 a unit and then you need a profit on top of that and you're saying look i'm going to be into this for 270 i have to sell it for 350 to make my returns is that reasonable and in real estate it's all about the governor is replacement cost barriers to entry to as well but you're looking at what is the replacement cost based on land construction costs a reasonable inflation adjustment as well. And in 2019, we were looking at the market and we're going, man, we're we're like, we have a 15 year old asset. We would not expect to get even close to replacement costs, right? You know, if you can buy something brand new for 350,000 a unit, why would you buy something 15 years old for 340 a unit? It just doesn't make sense. So we started to exit the market back in 2019. Now I'll be the first one to admit Anybody who bought existing product pre-COVID did unbelievably well. COVID bailed them out, but we just didn't like it. And so today we see that distortion even greater. And we haven't bought anything in two and a half years. So, you know, the way we've been entering that market is the barbell approach. And I really think that we're going to be vindicated here in the next year as you see these prices um, come down and a lot of these gains given back. One thing that I kind of wanted to touch upon were, were these quality opportunity zones. I'd like to talk about some of your funds as well. That is kind of based on these quality opportunity zones. What what are those and who's offering those incentives? Qualified opportunity zone. Uh, we've been in this program since 2018. The law was passed in 2017 as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The easiest way for me to explain it is it's incentive for high net worth investors who have capital gains to invest in qualified opportunity zone funds, um, which ultimately invest in qualified opportunity zones themselves, projects in there. And and, and generally, they're going to be ground up developments because the way the law is written is that you have to more than double the basis of the property. So you can't really do value add here. So almost everything in QOZs is ground up development. The reason why you would do this is that you as an investor, if you have a capital gain, it can be from any source whatsoever. It can be from stocks, It can be from bonds, the sale of a company. It can be real estate. If you invest that within 180 days of realizing that gain into a qualified opportunity zone fund, you will get two benefits. The first benefit is you get a deferral. So if you invested this year capital gains into our fund, you wouldn't pay those taxes until 2027. You would recognize them for tax year 2026. You wouldn't pay them until 2027. The best benefit, though, is if you are in the program for 10 years and one day, you will pay no taxes on any gains from those dollars. So if you invested a half million dollars and it grew to one million, two million, three million, five million, it doesn't matter. Uh, You will pay no gains whatsoever on that capital. And that's really the best part of the program. So real estate is already a 
tax efficient asset and the QOZ law just puts it on steroids. Why was that law passed to begin with? Yeah. So QOZ area, there's about 8,700 of them in the country. And what they were trying to do is promote development in moderate to lower income areas. And, and this law actually goes really far back into the new market tax credits. These zones were underneath a different set of laws that was a good program, but this program's much better. And it actually has and had bipartisan support. Republicans wanted it for one reason. Democrats want it for another. There's always controversy around these things once they're rolled out. And the reality is that, um, you know, you, you think about these zones as being moderate to low income and you're like, oh, I want to stay away. And there was a lot of, uh, I think, misconception about that in the, in the beginning where we really look for is along the edges. And so QOZ law, it doesn't change the financials. We, we don't use a different set of um, parameters when we're looking at those deals. Our job is to make the investor money. And so we can't go into these deep neighborhoods, these distressed neighborhoods. So what we're looking are for areas that are already in transition and fishing around the edges. And you'd be surprised, like a place like Nashville. If you think about Nashville, um, when the 2010 census came out, and that's when all these areas were designed, downtown Nashville, almost all of it is a QZ area because there were there was no housing in 2008, 2009, 2010. It only happened in the last 10 years. And so if you think about how a lot of these cities have evolved since like that 2010 area, uh, there's still some amazing opportunities to find those those growth areas, those transition areas, and get ahead of that in the QOZ laws. It's a very finite um, data set. We are one of the largest players. I think we have the best um, funnel of uh, opportunities and the best pipeline of opportunities in that market. We see everything basically in the Sunbelt markets. I personally have invested a considerable amount of my own capital into these funds. And I always tell people, look, uh, if you're going to invest in real estate and you want uh, more exposure, you have to look at qualified opportunity zone funds because the law is just uh, too good to pass up and not take advantage of. Yeah, I, I think for the investors, and like you mentioned, that's that's the, the advantages are huge, right? Especially if you keep it there for 10 years. I mean, you're not paying taxes on capital gains. But uh, on the other end, you know, if you're having these new builds in these opportunity zones, that can have a huge impact on you know housing supply and then in turn rental costs and things like that uh, that would make quality of life much easier in those major cities like Nashville. We're contributing to the shortage that's there. We're building supply and we're meeting a demand for the market. And you know, in some ways, the program itself has been extremely successful in creating jobs. I think when they thought about this in the beginning, they thought that maybe some of these neighborhoods somehow building a class A multifamily building in, in a moderate to low income area would help the area. That hasn't been the case so much because you don't just build a pretty building and take care of the, you know, take the social issues and, and the problems in that neighborhood. So I think that was a little bit short sighted. So when I said it, it still has bipartisan support, it does because it's a jobs program. It's doing generally what it was meant to do. We're complying with the law. But again, if we're not making money, that's our that's our role here, right? Um, we have to still adhere to the basic fundamental laws of investment returns and the math that works for us when it comes to buying dirt, building the rents we're going to achieve, et cetera. Absolutely, Michael. We have a couple minutes here, and I just kind of want to give this time to you. I know that you know you have a number of different funds available, and I, I wanted to know if you could talk about how people can get involved with Origin Investments, how they can get in touch with you, some funds that you are looking to kind of fill up right now. How can investors basically you know, get involved here. 
Yeah. So I already talked about the qualified opportunity zone fund. That's that fund sort of um, sits outside, and we have three core funds, as I'll call it. We have a, a lower risk fund called our multifamily credit fund, and that is all about yield and protection and investing in credit or debt obligations, right? The Income Plus Fund is a multi-strategy fund. So within that fund, um, that's the fund that we have preferred equity, which is a debt instrument. Credit, you're protected through the capital structure, very consistent and creates stability in the fund. And then on the other side, we have ground-up development. 20% of the fund is geared towards ground-up development. I call it sort of the jet fuel for that fund. And then the middle are um, kind of core assets. So when you think about building an asset, they move from the development into sort of this core bucket. And that creates a sleeve that's really important for depreciation, for cash flow, for um, continued appreciation and just real estate exposure. But they really move from, we're not buying anything today. We're moving from that ground up development, moving those assets in and then reloading the ground up development. Um, and so that fund is, is meant to provide nine to 11% annualized returns and consistent income as well in a tax efficient manner. And then on the right hand side for our, our highest risk fund is our growth fund four. And growth fund four is 100% ground up development. And it's really for investors looking for appreciation who don't have a need for yield today. But the interesting thing about both the income plus fund and growth fund and QOZ really is the tax efficiency. And when we think about real estate Real estate is meant to be bought and hold for a long time, like any good asset, right? You don't want to flip things. It has great tax advantages. And so the growth fund four, if you want to stay in it for longer, it, it actually changes structure and it becomes more of a core fund. So think about it as we're going to buy and build about 12 assets. And if you want to get out in four years, there's going to be a net asset value, a mark to market. You can get out. If you want to stay in, to this core portfolio where we've built value, you've protected your equity because of the growth in the unit price, then you can. And you can enjoy the benefits of cash flow and continued appreciation and depreciation as well. So that's one of the unique things that we as investors you know, think about how do we generate the highest risk-adjusted returns, but also the highest after-tax risk-adjusted returns because everybody who invests with Origin is the taxable investor, just like I am and just like my partner is. You asked another question about how do people get in touch with us. Very simple. Go to our website, origininvestments.com. You can download any of our decks. You can research our funds. You can research us. You can connect with somebody uh, in investor relations directly right there on the website. Um, so we make it super easy, very user and investor friendly. Michael, thank you for being on the podcast. I mean, there's so many tidbits there, so many, so much information that you that you uh, were able to provide today with the listeners. I really hope that we can do this again sometime soon. Your take on on the market, whatever it is, you know, six months, a year from now. Thank you for having me. I'd love to be on again. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Michael's message targets high net worth accredited investors, but there's also much to take from Origins Operations. His views on risk and his confidence in promoting his company speak to anyone unsure about taking a chance. A big thanks to Michael for coming on the podcast and sharing his thoughts on the market and how Origin operates in this economy. And as always, a big thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review or follow us on the streaming platform of your choice. Until the next time, take care.